Well, we're going to continue on with our study in the book of John. I want you to turn to John chapter 6. Now, for my birthday, because it was my birthday this past Tuesday, I turned 62. And yes, thank you. Um, you know, even before I go any further, before I tell this little story, I, I want to pray because I have not been feeling well since I left and I'm still sick and uh, I, I'm going to keep my distance as Meredith said, but I just want to pray for strength and the ability to hear from the Spirit. Even though I have notes down here, guys, my job, these are just, these are notes, I don't write out my sermons. And so I need God's spirit right now to take this and whatever else he wants to give me and be able to pour it through my heart to you guys so that you receive truth and so that that truth encourages you and transforms you, okay? Agree with me in prayer. Father, I just ask you right now, spirit of God, we welcome you here to be our teacher, our counselor. Lead us into truth. Give us ears to hear what the spirit would have to say to us as a church. Give us hearts that desire to not only look in the mirror and see what is wrong, but to change it. Father, to look into your word and where your word says, hey, change by my grace, then Father, that's going to be our heart. We want to follow you, Lord God. This is an exciting adventure. It's hard at times. But in the end, Lord God, we're going to look back. And not only are we going to hear our Father say, well done, good and faithful servant, we will never regret following the Lord of life, ever. So, Father, speak to our hearts right now and encourage them in Jesus' name. Amen. So, on my birthday, I always get to watch a movie that I really like. And so, one of my favorite movies is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I don't necessarily recommend that, but I, I'm able to watch it and realize, okay, that's definitely not true. Um, but, one of, but there's a lot of adventure and mystery and so on. But one of the things that's just not true that irks me every time I watch it, but I still love the movie, right, is this whole fascination with the Holy Grail. Now, the Holy Grail is apparently this relic that someone say, said they discovered that was the cup that Jesus used, the chalice that he drank from the night that he was betrayed. And he was with all of his disciples. And it's that picture that you might remember, uh, Leonardo da Vinci painting of all 12. And there's Jesus in the middle and he has the cup. And that's where he institutes the Lord's Supper at this last Passover meal. That cup apparently, some legends say, actually received the drops of Jesus' blood that spilled from his side. Like, who would want to drink from that cup now, right? But of course, if you drink from it, according to the legend, what happens? You get to live forever. What a fascination in our present-day culture, not just the last 2,000 years plus, but living forever. We want a diet. We want an exercise. We want to do whatever we can do, at least as long as it doesn't require too much sacrifice, right? If it requires too much sacrifice, hey, I'm willing to die at 70 or whatever just so that I can eat this or that or the other. But the truth is we're fascinated with living forever. And it, what amazes me is that people want to physically, in this day in in our bodies live forever the fountain of youth Ponce de Leon that's why Florida is famous by the way I mean come on where where do these ideas come from it comes from the superstitions and the deep longings within the soul of man to be able to cheat death the holy grail some people even say it goes back to King Arthur and all of that stuff. And I don't doubt that King Arthur ever lived, but of course the stories that surround him are mythological. The truth, though, is so is the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail, drinking from some cup filled with water will never give you eternal life. Today, we're going to begin a, we're going to continue our stories entitled The Abundant Life, but we're going to look at John 6, and we're going to take two weeks to go through it, because what I'm going to have us look at today is going to set up the teaching that's in the other half of John 6. But this chapter, John 6, is utterly pivotal in John's gospel. Between today and next week, you're going to see why that's the case. But it has everything to do with our quest for our soul's satisfaction 
in finding this thing called eternal life that we are all looking for. And praise God, Jesus says that's who he is all about. He is this life. So let me follow me as I read. I'm going to start with verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 27. John 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd, and I want you to underline that word crowd, because we're going to see three groups of people in this chapter. Not today, but between today and next week. The crowd, the Jews, and, the, and some disciples. Well, the, a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a peat, to each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, if you were one of his disciples, what would you be thinking? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Seriously, Jesus? Five small loaves, two small fish. Go ahead and have a seat, guys. There's like, what is Jesus going to do now? Now, there was plenty of grass in the place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Now, let me just pause here, 5,000 men. Now, the reason why John emphasizes, and all the synoptics do, 5,000 men, is because this is during the daytime. Most women and children would not have traveled from Capernaum on one side of the sea to the other side. That, that, that's like an all-day plus excursion. Why would you do that? Dads might do this, but... The moms and children, most of them would probably just stay home. The dad would kind of take some notes and then go home and teach his family, but this would, be a, this would generally be for the, for the, the, the men. So that, that happens to be the focus here, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. I want you to just underline that phrase, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. All the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did. They began to say, surely, this is the prophet who's to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again into a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. Now, it's called a lake here. We read in verse 1, it's called a sea. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had, been, that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone, ahead, they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place <clears throat> where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples there were there, They got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search 
of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, if you recall, several weeks ago, I told you that there were four stories that overlapped John's gospel with the synoptics. That's not the complete truth. Technically, the first two of those stories were indeed stories that are found in the synoptics, but there's actually very little overlap that John gives us with regard to those stories. The first one that we discovered was the story of John the Baptist. But the only thing that overlaps is that Jesus came to baptize people in the Holy Spirit, though John had only come as a precursor, pointing people to Jesus as the one who would baptize in water. And so there's very little overlap in that story. The second story is the cleansing of the temple. Now, we realize that Jesus cleansed the temple during Passion Week. That is the last week of his ministry on earth. But John places a cleansing of the temple at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. I'm going to suggest that those who are saying it's really the same story, John just places it here for theological reasons. I'm going to strongly disagree with that because as you read the details of that story, there's too many things that do not line up with the end of his ministry and perfectly align with the beginning of his ministry, not the least of which is the Pharisees saying, what are you talking about, Jesus? You're going to destroy this temple and raise it in three days when Jesus was referring to his body. He says, These, we, have been, we have been building this temple for 46 years. That would perfectly align with AD 27 to 28 and not 30 to 33 AD. So, AD. so this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So that story, and there's even aspects of that story that are just different. Some that are the same, some that are different. So that story doesn't line up. Why am I getting into this? Because I just read to you the two stories in John that actually do overlap, and there's considerable overlap, with the synoptics. We discover these two stories right next to each other in the very middle of John's story of the beginning of Jesus' ministry to Passion Week. Chapters 12 to 21, John, have to do with Passion Week. A lot of chapters. Half of John's gospel is devoted to that last week. The first half, this is what I'm talking about. There's only two stories. They're right in the middle of it. I'm going to suggest to you chapter 6 uses these, two, these stories as a pivot so that the entire chapter of chapter 6 is pivotal in chapters for chapters 1 to 11. Do you follow what I'm saying? So for 11 chapters, John is telling us all that Jesus did, and right in the middle, there's a pivot. We're going to see that a little bit this week, but much more so next week. Something so significant is revealed to us about this Jesus that causes such a stir within the people that even many of his disciples say, that's just too hard, Jesus. And we begin to see the Jews rising up and stirring up the people, kicking people out of the synagogue. They are serious about opposing Jesus. So we're going to need to look at some of these claims by Jesus in this chapter. More of that's going to be next week, though. There's an emphasis also that we're going to get to today on signs. Signs point to something. They point to Jesus' claims and specifically his claims here that begin even to divide his followers. I did that three times, didn't I? I don't know why I did that. Anyway, they divide his followers. This chapter is pivotal. And so what I want to do right now for the remainder of our time, the next 35 minutes, I want us to look at those things in these two stories of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water that John presents to us that are different 
than the synoptics. Because remember, John, if there's any over, let me back up. John purposefully writes his gospel so that there's very little overlap. He's filling in the gaps, so to speak. Again, chapters 1 through 11. This is the only chapter about Jesus' Galilean ministry in these 11 chapters. The rest of it, for the most part, takes place in Galilee. There's a story of the wedding of Cana, and and that, of course, happens in Cana, which is Galilee. But much of the synoptics focus on Jesus' ministry in Capernaum and the surrounding areas. For John, it's Judea. Again, John's purpose is to present very little overlap. So I think it would be wisdom, kind of like a clue. Do you ever like to watch mystery movies and try and figure out who done it? And you're looking for clues, right? So that's what I want us to do. I want you to put on your Sherlock Holmes cap, okay? And I want us to look for some clues because what these clues are going to do, that would be, and I, we're going we're gonna to find... There's actually eight. I'm only going to look at seven things in these two stories that don't overlap that John wants to pull out of these two stories because they're going to set up for us the rest of the teaching of Jesus in chapter 6. So, okay, so let's, let's get out our magnifying glass. Let's look at these ideas, these truths that are presented. I mean, the very first one, I mentioned is that there's only two stories that overlap and that kind of gives us the next gives us this idea maybe we should look for those things the in this these two stories that don't overlap first of all it says that this occurred on the other side of Galilee why would John want to point out that it happened on the other side of Galilee? Well, he tells us because people have been following Jesus. They had seen his miraculous signs and they wanted to know more about this Jesus. They were willing then to go from one side of the sea all the way over to the other. They didn't take a boat. They walked there. And as they walked there, they finally found out where he was. Jesus, we're told by the synoptics, went there just to be secluded, to be in a remote place so he could listen to his disciples because he had just sent them out two by two, all 12 of them. And they did miracles. They healed the sick. They proclaimed the gospel. And he wanted this to be like a little bit of a a, a downtime, a little bit of stepping back from ministry and just being encouraged. Well, the crowds followed him. The compassion of Jesus, his heart broke for them, and he began to minister, and it was like an all-day thing. I want us to, John wants us to see these people are hungry. They're hungry for something about who this Jesus is, and I'm going to say there's a curiosity that's driving them. Now, I, let me just... Let's just realize that sometimes this curiosity is good, but sometimes it is very fleshly, and we're going to look at that a little bit later. So some of them, out of their wanting to see more about Jesus and hear him, they're just really fascinated. Wow, this, this dude does miracles. That was fascinating to them. What else is he going to do? I want to be there. I want to be able to... Tell my grandkids about, yeah, I saw this Jesus. He was a miracle worker. And I've been there. Maybe in this new kingdom he sets up, I'm going to be, yeah, I I was there at the feeding of 5,000. I I witnessed it. They want to be able to see these miracles and say, yep, I was there. It was pretty cool. Let me tell you all about it. Others, though, they want more than that. They really are wanting what Jesus is offering them. And I'm telling you this because there are so many people in, the, in churches today who are just like this. They fall into one of these two groups. Some of them, they just want to know about Jesus. They just, you know what, if I go to church, then that's going to make me okay. They're, they want to, okay, so tell me about Jesus. Okay, I've had enough. All right, that, that's, that's good. 30 minutes, yep. I'm good. I'm going to go home now. I've done my Jesus thing for the week. Some people, they just want enough of God, and I'm fine. But others, they're hungry. See, at age 14, I realized I was in that first group, and I just said, man, there's got to be more about Christianity than this. And I discovered it, and it changed my life. 
And I found myself falling into that second group. There's another thing, a third thing I want to point out. Actually, I guess it's, yeah, it's the third thing. And John tells us that it was near the Passover feast. I'm going to tell you right now, no other, none of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, tell us it was near the, the Passover feast. And so I've got to ask John, why are you doing this? It's one small sentence, but John does talk about the Passover feast, whereas the other synoptics do not in other stories. Now, we discovered that one of the reasons John probably does this is because, remember John the Baptist's declaration, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and behold the Son of God. And throughout John, the Son of God is the one who brings life. That is what the Passover feast was about. The Passover, remember, happened on the night before Pharaoh let the people of Israel go. He had witnessed 10 plagues, and that night, Passover night, was the killer, literally. It broke the camel's back, so to speak. It was the last straw. It was no more, and Pharaoh kicked them out of Egypt. Why? Because God took the life of the firstborn of every family that did not have blood over the post of their door, of their door entrance. And their oldest son, their firstborn, died. And God said this, Pharaoh, I'm doing this to your land because you took my firstborn. And God judged the land of Israel. Even the people of Israel, or excuse me, the Egyptians wanted them to leave. God had done so much, revealed so much of his glory and his power, unfortunately, in the form of judgment, so that all Israel... Exodus 7 says, would know that he alone is God. That night, God had them spread blood over the door frames so that the death angel would pass over them. They had a certain meal from that day forward. That meal was surrounded by a number of questions that the father would ask just a remembrance of that night, the night that God redeemed Israel. Passover became the emblem and the highlight of God's redemptive acts in all of history from that moment forward. The cross happened, what day, church? On Passover. The Passover lamb, Jesus, was sacrificed on Passover day. And I think John is looking ahead to that while he's also looking back to the past Jewish Passover that this is the moment that this something is going to happen here that John is going to unfold for us in the teaching of Jesus that we're going to look at more next week that is all about redemption. It is all about Jesus coming and saying no more to Pharaoh, no more to death, no no more to dying, no more to the stranglehold of sin on your life. I have come that you might have life and have that life more abundantly. And I'm going to come back to that word abundantly too in just a few, just a few minutes. So John includes this idea of Passover for a very good reason. He's wanting us to see something more than just yeah, it was near Passover. Because generally, before this time, when he talks about Passover, it was more to tell us Jesus is in Jerusalem because he's at the Passover feast, but he's not. So I'm going to suggest there's more to it, and I just shared that with you. It is all about redemption and purchasing us for life. Jesus apparently, though John doesn't tell us, he's been teaching and actually been healing as well, all day. It's late in the day, and so he asks Philip, who happens to have been born and raised in Bethsaida. John tells us that earlier. Philip was from Bethsaida. Not only was Philip from Bethsaida, Philip was from Bethsaida, but Andrew and Peter were from Bethsaida as well. Now, they moved to Capernaum, but they, were, they knew Bethsaida, and this is happening close to Bethsaida. And so he turns to the one who would have knowledge about the human resources of this area. Is there a field? Is there a store close by? A Wawa? Is there some place where we can get food for all 5,000 of these people? And the authority, the one who was born and raised there, said, ain't happening, Jesus. See, I've been here. I, I, these are my stomping grounds. I've run through this field before. There's nothing around here. 
It's going to cost eight months of wages just for people to have a bite. Human resources, what man can produce, will in no way be sufficient. I'm paraphrasing. So what do they do? Andrew has this brilliant idea. Jesus, I did my homework, and look what I found. Here's a boy. He's got five. Now, here's what John does. He's the only one in the, he doesn't, the synoptics don't do it, but he tells us that there are five small barley loaves and five small fish, just to emphasize the human inadequacy to meet this need. Humans, we can't do it. None of us, even if we all pitched in, okay, here, what do I got in my wallet today? Nope, it's not going to be enough. Human resources will completely fail. They are insufficient. And so Jesus has to show that he and he alone is sufficient. This is John's point. Jesus and him alone. This isn't a man, this is a boy. It's not just five loaves, it's five small loaves and five small fish. And then he has them all sit down and he counts them, one, two, three, four, yep, 5,000 men. The synoptics go on to say, plus women and children. So Jesus has them sit down to eat. This then becomes a miracle. Do you see that word right there in verse 14? After the people saw the miraculous sign. Now the word miraculous is supplied there. This is the general Greek word for sign. The word that most of the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke use is miracle. It's the Greek word dunamis, which literally means power, but it's a display of power that is a miracle. So it's translated just about everywhere throughout the New Testament, miracle. Miracle, signs, and wonders is how that phrase is generally given. John never uses that word miracle, never uses the word dunamis. He always uses this one, semeron. It means sign. What does a sign do? If you're traveling down I-4 and you're lost, God bless you, but there's plenty of signs that point you in the right direction. Careful on you know, MapQuest and see some of these other places, they won't necessarily point you in the right direction. I've had that experience before, but signs are supposed to point you in the right direction. In this case, this miracle pointed to Jesus. It affirmed that he truly is the prophet that we read in that verse. And, and he is so much more, so much more that we're going to discover next week. Jesus is the one that this sign is pointing to. He even says to, to, to the point, he says later, it was the last thing that I read in verse 20, 27, on him, referring to himself, on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And so Jesus did, does this miracle in part because he has compassion on them. Don't get me wrong. That is, that just doesn't happen to be John's focus. The synoptics point that out. But John's focus is this is a sign and it's pointing to something and get ready for this because this is about the feeding with five loaves of bread and Jesus, we're going to learn, is the bread of life, but that's for next week. And so John points this out. This is a sign. Next thing that we read, number five, is that the people ate their fill. So they ate their fill. It says in the next verse, as much as they wanted, they, they desired. Synoptics use the term, they were satisfied. John says they were filled up. He does use the word satisfied later in verse 26. So why is he wanting to point this out? That they were filled up. Because Jesus, the true bread of life, off that, and he offers himself that that bread, that living bread will satisfy, that living bread will fill you so that you will hunger no more. Again, more on that next week. I can remember, I can remember, listen to me, like, like almost every night, when I'm done dinner, a couple hours later, I get what are commonly known as the munchies. Have you, do you guys ever get the munchies? I'm sure I'm the only one, right? And I'll go into my pantry, 
yeah, now, and I'll walk around and open the, now, go back to the pantry, and because I'm hungry, and I just want something, right? We're watching a, a TV show, and, and so I'm just wanting to eat something, and maybe that's just not good or healthy, but in my mind, I've got the munchies. I want to eat something, and and I can eat a little bit of this or eat a little bit of that, and I'm not satisfied until finally it's like I found that one thing. There we go. I'm done. Hopefully I find that in the beginning, not after having 10 things to eat, right? <coughs> so we just get the munchies, and, and, and we're not satisfied until we eat that one thing. It's like, yep, that's what my body, that's what I was wanting. It's amazing how, especially a pregnant woman will crave certain things, and yet there is something about that thing that they're craving that actually meets a real need. Pickle ice cream, go figure. No, truthfully, though, that they'll want things, and yeah, it's the iron in that that their body is craving. There is something in our soul's church that craves, that wants, that wants and longs to be satisfied. We were created by God for this amazing relationship we learned with God, we learned in, in John 4. But the reason why we are kept distant from that is because we have sought our soul's satisfaction in all the things of this world. We sang a song about that, I think, didn't we, today? Our soul's satisfaction can only be found in the living water. That's what Jesus told the, the Samaritan woman. It can only be found in the living bread. That's what we're going to learn about next week. He is the one who satisfies. And you're going to look throughout this world. Your friends are going to come to you and say, hey, let's party. And you have to wonder, wait a second, when you say party, I imagine it's not with little caps and little horns that were blowing, confetti. We're talking about getting drunk and having sex. Is that right? And basically, well, yeah, I didn't want to tell you because you're a Christian, right? So why don't you come with us? And you're just thinking, what? And yet, for many... That is such a strong temptation because the drunkenness, the, the sex, the, just the, the other aspects of the party life and being happy and telling jokes, and, and I guess it has something to do with lampshades somewhere in there, right? And the truth, though, is does that really satisfy that longing in your soul? For maybe a few minutes, it'll numb you enough, but you walk away you, you wake up the next morning and hopefully you'll remember something about that evening and you'll just realize how empty that is. Church, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't care what the world offers you in money. I don't care what amazing car they offer you, what kind of vacation plan they offer you. I don't care what the world offers you. It is empty, empty, empty. It cannot satisfy and only Jesus can. Because as you're reading through here, church, realize he gave them bread and they were satisfied. And we're going to learn next week, he's going to tell them, guys, look, I am the living bread. Eat of me and you will forever be satisfied. You will never hunger again, he tells them. This sounds so similar to John 4, where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He goes deeper, though. To the point where what he says, now he's not just talking to a woman, he's now talking to a large number of people. They really, they followed him all the way back to the other side of Galilee, and he only unloads a teaching that opens their eyes to what wickedness truly lies in their hearts. Ouch. I want us to notice a few other things. This is now number six. They gather 12 baskets of leftovers. Excuse me, 12 baskets of leftovers are preserved. 12 baskets of leftovers are preserved. I want to walk through that quickly. 12 baskets. Why 12? The other synoptics, other synoptics talk about 12, but John, I think, wants us to really dig into that. 12 is the number of the people of God. We see this especially in Revelation that treats visions and numbers very symbolically. There are 24 elders, 2 times 12. 
There are 144,000, which is 12 times uh, 12,000. As you go to the very end, the New Jerusalem, which I believe is not a literal city, but it is a picture of the people of God coming down out of heaven. That is the bride, the, the, the wife of the lamb. It has 12 gates, 12 foundations. The wall, the city itself is 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia. Now, God bless those people who want to figure out how many miles that is. And they give the dimensions in miles, 1,400 miles. But that's not his point. Once you start talking about 1,400 miles, you'll lose 12. Why? Because 12 by 12, but that is the perfect number of the people of God. That's what the city is about, the people of God. The, the width of the wall is 144 feet or cubits thick. 12 times 12. And by the way, those outside the city, those directly outside the city are the unbelievers, the sexually immoral who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I'm only saying that because I truly believe this is a symbolic picture of the people of God and not a literal city which would stand 1,400 miles tall. But directly outside the city on the new earth, what? No, see, they're outside the kingdom of God. But my point is 12. 12 is the people of God. John is wanting to, to realize there's 12 baskets. What is it filled with? It's filled with leftovers. The Greek word here for leftovers means excess. It means overflowing abundance. And John focuses on this idea of abundance in his gospel. For example, in John 10.10, 10, Jesus came to give us life of abundance, and it's the same Greek word here. This idea that Jesus comes, and he doesn't just come to give us life, he comes to give us life that is super abundant, it's excess, it's overflowing. But here's the kicker, because he says, I want you to gather these 12 baskets of bread, he leaves out the idea of fish, only because he wants us to focus on the bread, because he's the living bread, but he says, what? So that they are not so that they do not spoil. Your, my version says, let nothing be wasted. Now listen to what I'm saying here. This word, be wasted, is found throughout John's gospel. How about John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not be wasted or be lost or perish, but have everlasting life. This is the word that's commonly translated perish. As a matter of fact, if you were to turn over to verse 26, he says this. He says, do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. It doesn't perish. Jesus' whole focus here is how he preserves those who truly believe in him because there's life in them, and that life is abundant life. That life is eternal life, and it's in them. That Jesus, this whole focus is on Jesus preserving and protecting his people. Now, I'm going to get into that more because I am certainly going to sound like a Calvinist on this point when I'm technically not, because that is just simply the focus that John gives, that Jesus gives to this section. We're going to have to look a little bit closely, but I'm not going to spend too much time on this idea of believing because in the Greek it means to believe but to continuously believe. We could talk about Judas, etc., but I'm, my, my focus here is that Jesus' heart is to preserve his people. In John 6, 39, he says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose, same Greek word here, allow to be wasted, allowed to perish, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. That is Jesus' mission for your life, to preserve you, to keep you. Peter tells us we are kept by the power of God through faith, but we're kept by the power of God. In this passage, it just doesn't want to focus on through faith, though it speaks of it. It wants Jesus' focus, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to preserve you. Jesus preserves. 
all whom the Father gives to him and thereby believes and continues to believe in him. I want you to turn just for a moment to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. We need to understand a particular word here. I think it's going to do a lot for us in grasping what Peter, excuse me, what Paul is getting at for Timothy. But he says, that we'll back up to verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. And I do believe that, that he is talking to true believers here. But verse 13, interesting. He says, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. If we are faithless. So Jesus, are you saying that if, if I just decide to walk away from you and never believe in you again and shake my fist, a hand in your, my fist in your face, if I, diso- if I just turn away from you and I faithless, that you'll still pursue me and you'll never let me go and you'll always preserve me. I'm going to suggest, see, that's not what he's getting at in this verse. Can I tell you, there are times in my own Christian life in which I have doubted. Not the least of which is when I turned 20, wondering in my college days, I've known the Lord for six years at that point and I'm wondering, is it possible that all of this has just been a psychological type of conversion. I was majoring in psychology. Is it possible that maybe there's really no God and I'm simply following Jesus because my parents told me to and finally when I was 14, I got it, right? So I guess I'm going to follow Jesus. I began to have questions and doubts. That, by the way, is when I started getting into apologetics and God just blew me away with so much evidence for the Christian faith. But I wrestled with God. There are times in which I have doubted his ability. This word for faithless in the Greek is a-pistos. A meaning no, pistos meaning faith. No faith. But let me tell you, he is not talking about having no saving faith. What is he talking about? On two different occasions, we discovered Jesus using this word. (laughs) <laughs> in which a gospel, one gospel writer has Jesus using this word, but another gospel writer uses a slightly different Greek word. I'm just going to give you an example so you, you can kind of see what I'm talking about. Jesus is asleep in the back of a boat. The waves are blowing, the wind is stirred up, the waves are crashing over, and these fishermen who have been on this sea like all of their lives... They probably learned to swim by age one. Here they are, and it says they're terrified for their lives. I'm going to suppose that that fear was totally legit. These were fishermen. This wasn't their first rodeo. So they wake up, Jesus, Jesus, are you just going to let us perish? Come on, help us out. And Jesus just speaks the word, be still. In the Greek, it's one word, be still. He just says one word, And the winds die down, and the waves grew calm. And then he says this, O you of no faith. And he continues on with a rebuke. But in another gospel, it uses a different Greek word. Same story, but he says, O you of little faith. Oligar, pistos. Oligarchy, little few. And Oh, you have little faith. So which is it, Jesus? Is it that they have no faith or is it that they have little faith? See, it's both. Jesus' idea is that they have sporadic faith. Here one day, gone the next. In this event of Jesus sleeping in the back of the boat, they had no faith. But the day before, they had faith. The next day, they'll probably have faith. This is how we are, church. One day, we're believing in God, and the next day is, God, where are you? Man, just can't believe it. My life is falling apart. Been there, done that church ever? You know, <laughs> and you've heard this story, so I'll be super brief. I'm walking up to the dealership. I've written up all the work, and it falls way far short of what I need for the month. And Mike Jeffords is walking beside me, and, and Mike says, you know what, Mike, I, I, I think we've been down this road before. He was being a bit sarcastic as Mike could be. I think we've been down this road before. I think God, in every single one of those times, has provided for us. I think God's going to do this. 
And I'm kind of thinking, dude, I'm your pastor. What do you, but I was, I was smart enough to hold my tongue and realize God right now is speaking through him. I'm allowing fear to negate faith. And so Mike just prays, God just provide. We walk right inside. I hand the book for the used car manager to okay. And he looks at it, hands it back to me and says, did you see the three cars in the service drive? Uh, no, no, I didn't. Go out to the service drive, walk these three cars, and I'm just staring at this book now. I count up the amount, and it's like it was a holy moment, church. I'm just going to say to you, I shared, Mike, with the exact figure that I needed us to make to pay bills and, you know, everything. The exact amount. <coughs> I'm just going to call that X. I handed the book to Mike, and I said, Mike... I totaled everything, and it comes to X plus $5. Woohoo! a little bit of excess for the kingdom of God. But God meant exactly. I, I felt rebuked in that moment. I felt like, oh, you of no faith or, oh, you of little faith. Because I'm sure I, I probably preached just the day before, right? And now here I am. It's like, oh, man. So I thanked Mike. And I just realized, you know, there, there are days, and, and God, by the way, has taken me through so many of these church, through so many examples in which he is faithful. And I'm just going to tell you this morning, God is faithful for you. There are times in which, and in that moment, we don't have faith. It's not that I don't have faith in Jesus. In this moment, though, fear has just effectively pushed faith out, and that's what was happening to these people, to these now on, on the Sea of Galilee, they're actually being filled with fear. And I'm going to close with this because my time's up. And here's my last point. I'm going to skip the idea of them pointing out or, or wanting to make Jesus king because I'm going to save that for next week and you'll see why. But I just want us to see this last idea. Here they are on the Sea of Galilee. The synoptics say, by the way, that they're halfway across the lake. The synoptics also say that they're struggling at the oars. And they've been doing this all night. It's the, it's the fourth watch, which means it's after 3 a.m. And they left in the evening, early evening. So hours they've been doing this, getting very, a very small way. Three to three and a half miles. They're halfway across. John just simply tells us that a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. That's enough for us to realize this is danger. And Jesus walks to them on the water, and it totally freaks them out. They're terrified, and he simply says this, it's me, don't be afraid. And here's what John includes that the other synoptics don't. They welcomed Jesus, or my translation says they were willing to take him. They welcomed Jesus into the boat. When Jesus stepped into the boat, they were suddenly on the other side of the shore. I'm going to suggest it's not because they suddenly were motivated to row extra hard. <laughs> I'm going to suggest that Peter didn't finally get the motor started in the back of the boat. I'm going to suggest that Jesus did a miracle here. And this is the idea. Jesus is the living bread. Welcome him into your boat and look what he will do. And that's, my, that's the challenge I want to leave with you this evening. Welcome Jesus into your boat. He is the one that will preserve you. Physically, yes, but guess what? There may be times in people's lives in which he said, I'm sorry, I've given you only 30 years and for the rest of eternity I want you with me. He may give you 90 for Paul, he no doubt was in his 60s, and <coughs> in his last words to Timothy, the last words that he ever penned, he says, and Jesus will guide me safely into his eternal kingdom. He died that year. They say that he was beheaded, but he lost his life in a dungeon, martyred for the sake of the gospel. Jesus preserved his life into eternity. 
Jesus' goal is to preserve us. Jesus' goal is that we welcome him. When there's fear, we welcome him into our boat. When we're looking for the satisfaction of our soul to be found in the world and we realize, what am I doing? It's now time to welcome Jesus into our boat to partake of that bread that can preserve, that can satisfy and fill us up. He is the only one who can do this. I don't care where you look in the world, church, you will never be satisfied. Only in Christ, only in him. And the devil may come and he may take your life. And God has permitted that on occasion. That happens. We go through sicknesses throughout our lives and and for whatever reason, people like Johnny Erickson Tata, Jesus has just never healed her. And so the question is, In what small aspect of my life, God, can I bring you glory once I've welcomed you into my boat? Because that's all this is about. It's not about how happy I can get or how satisfied with the things of the world and how big I can build my business and all of that or how big a success I can be in the world's eyes because it all comes down to not the applause of men but God's single applause. Well done, good and faithful servant. And I long to hear that at the end of my life when I stand before him because I have found my satisfaction in the living bread in Jesus alone. Can you stand with me? Father, right now, it's our turn. And I put my hands to my chest because, Father, that's where my heart is. Symbolically, God, I offer you my heart. To the only satisfier of my soul. And when I doubt, Lord God, that I would trust in you because you are faithful and you cannot disown those who truly believe in you. I am yours. And I just ask you, Father, that as we again tonight just take our hearts symbolically and lay them before you, take that heart, that rededication, that heart's anticipation and reaching out to you, just take that right now. Take my heart. And Father, I pray, fill it again with hope, fill it with trust. Fill it with everything that I need. Get my eyes fixed on you, Jesus, and off the world. Lonely. And I just lay that down at the foot of the cross. And I just say, Jesus, once again, let me find my satisfaction in you. As you preserve my soul. Take me into your heavenly kingdom whenever you choose, because this life is about one thing, and that's you. Father, we welcome you into our lives, surrendering them to you. You're the Lord. You're the Lord. Do what you wish, but I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen.